Good morning again, and uh, thank you, Cindy, uh, for that prayer. I shared a few weeks ago that I, I learned to pray and that we learned to pray uh, in part by uh, l- listening to others pray, and that's certainly the case uh, when you pray. I appreciate that. It is the joy of a lifetime to be a disciple. The joy of a lifetime. You learn skills that you didn't have before. When you're a disciple, you learn community. You you find yourself surrounded by others with common goals with whom you can share your joys and your sorrows. You know that you're never alone. And when you're a disciple, you are unified around a common purpose. And you share and you, you have a goal and you work towards that and you celebrate victory, victories together. And when you have uh, setbacks and losses, you get together and you work through those together and you get better. The joy of a lifetime to be a disciple. And we, de- we see disciples everywhere around us. All you have to do is look. Look in your own family. Look in our own. You look around and you can see disciples everywhere in every culture. I'm not as familiar with other cultures, but West Texas, Eastern New Mexico, I'm a little more familiar with. So let me point to a few disciples that we see in the world around us, all right? What about this time of year, our football players? They are disciples. And I mean, if you've given yourself to the team and you've heard the speech starting out that, hey, all of you aren't going to make it and you're going to do two a days and you're going to be on a coach's weight program, you become a disciple of that program. We have a few of those people here and, and you are a disciple. You, you realize early on it's not going to be easy. And uh, if you survive, however, you'll have skills that you didn't have. You'll have joys and sorrows, companionship you didn't have, and you'll know the purpose together. Uh, I, I hear people in the community, in this community, tell me, you know, well, hey, I played for such and such coach back in the day. And they say it with a sense of pride. Or they say, you know, I, I played for, I played for, for him and his, his system. And I'm a product of that. And it made me a better person because I play, I was a part of his discipleship process. Uh, my daughter is currently a disciple of Mustang cross country. And that means it changes her habits and she is reforming her physical identity and mental identity at six o'clock every morning <laughs> for about an hour. And that's a discipleship process that I know nothing of. I can say that. We have in this congregation FFA disciples, people who learn a different way of being through FFA programs, through showing, through creed, through judging. We have golf kids who are golf disciples. Their muscle memory and their mental agility is reformed by the golf discipleship process. We have disciples of music, people who have learned to play instruments and who are being perfected in those instruments and with their voices all the time. When I was a kid, all I wanted to be was a ranch disciple. All I wanted to be was a rodeo disciple. And I learned, I gave myself to the process. I said, said, if it costs me everything, I'm going to give myself to that process. I want to be a horseman, and I want to be able to do things the old-fashioned way, and I want any notoriety that I have in life, I want it to be associated with that group of people. Now, I was a teenager and a very narrow-minded, and I was not very fun to be around, but I became a disciple of that way of life. There are disciples in our culture of a game called Fortnite. 
Anybody have Fortnite disciples in your house? It is a discipleship process. Uh, it, it may be a video game, a multi-billion dollar video game, but it is still a discipleship process. So notice that each example begins with, it's going to be tough. You're not going to learn it in an instant, and a lot of you won't make it. But we still, because of the challenge, we jump in there and we give it a shot. And the promise is of any discipleship process that's worth going through, if you hang in there, you will find life. You will find real life in the process. So Jesus, according to the Gospels, gathers a community of disciples. And the word disciple just means learner or student. He gathers a community of disciples. That's his whole strategy for redeeming the world, gathering a group of disciples. And to them he says with his words and actions, this will be the most worthwhile way of life that you could ever be a student of. You will gain your life. And also, being a disciple in the way of life, in the way of Jesus, will cost you everything. It will take everything that we have. So the text we turn now that Cindy read for us, and uh, we're, we're back on track in Luke's gospel here for a, a couple of weeks. We've been in Luke this year, this entire year. We started in Advent, and we've been working our way uh, through the book, through the gospel. Uh, we went through uh, the, the birth narrative and everything in Advent. We went through the Lenten story and the, went all the way to Easter and the effects of that. And we've been working back through some of the teachings of Jesus. And right now we're in a segment uh, where Jesus is on the road. He's on a road trip. Anybody like a good road trip? He's out there traveling with Willie Nelson on the road again with his disciples. And they're learning this, this discipleship process on the road. And they're on their way to Jerusalem. Now, this material that was read for us in Luke 14 is review material. None of this is new material. None of it is stuff that the disciples heard and went, oh, man, we didn't see that coming. This is all repeat. It's all review at this point. But Jesus brings it back up again. And remember, the disciples and the crowd that is gathered, is not, this is not limited to the 12. There were a lot more disciples. And in this case, there's a crowd. It's following Jesus, and they're still trying to figure out, hey, is this a program that I want to sign up for? Do I want to give myself to this at 6 o'clock every morning? Am I, am I, is the result promising enough that I'm going to dive in and try this thing or not? And we know even from the language of the text that it's not limited to a select few, you know, Green Berets who are already in the mix or people who were born with a close proximity to Jesus or who were already Jewish and already following God. This language itself, Whoever, anyone, any one of you, it's open. Just like the United Methodist Church, right? Open minds, open hearts, open doors. <laughs> open discipleship process. It's open to anybody that wants to jump in. The text quickly identifies with a broad, even though it's open to everyone, it begins to narrow through the qualifications. It raises the bar, saying if you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, then a few things are going to have to happen. And we actually have nice, it sets up for a good three-point sermon, because uh, there are three things that Jesus says, if you don't do this, then you cannot be my disciple. And he's saying y'all, right? If y'all, if any one of you doesn't do this, then you can't, you're disqualified. If you can't get through this step, then you can't be a disciple. And so it immediately grabs our attention. 
And the first one is one of the most shocking. You know, when, when you when you commit yourself to preaching through a book or a gospel in this case, and you and you commit yourself to preaching through a series of texts where I don't just you know wake up on Tuesday when I start sermon planning and say, I wonder what I'm gonna do this week. I guess laid out. I've already committed to that. And I'm telling you, when I opened up this week, I went, Oh great. This is a blast. This one's always so much fun. Well, what'd y'all talk about in church this week? Oh, it's this thing about how you should hate your father and mother and hate yourself and hate everything. And it was just this big mess. We don't even know what Ryan's been doing. You know, he's just all, he's all this talk about hate. I thought Christianity was about love. And the first thing Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if you don't hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. And yes, even your own life. And I mean, you know, it starts out more peripheral. So we're like, okay, father and mother, maybe I get it. And then we get a little closer and like, okay, well, spouse and uh, I don't know, children, brothers and sisters, that's easy. But children, I was supposed to hate my children. How does that work? And isn't the very point of the whole gospel that we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves? Didn't we just read that a few chapters back? And doesn't Jesus say elsewhere in Luke that we're supposed to honor our father and mother? So what in the world is going on? I see two conflicting things. One is love everybody and love God. And one is hate your father and mother. So what's going on, Jesus? So we dig in a little deeper and we realize that hating, this this word hate is not an emotional word in this context. And for Jews and for the ancient Near East culture, the, the word hate was a covenant word. It was a word of choice. It wasn't a, it wasn't a charged emotionally word like, oh, I just, I just hate the Denver Broncos. Or, I apologize, there are any Broncos fans. Or, I just can't stand those Texas Aggies, you know, so, or whatever. Or those Red Raiders. I know some of you did. Uh, but I, you know, we just say, we just get this emotionally charged statement. I just, I just hate those people. That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, hate in this sense is kind of, it's a Jewish idiom. It's, it's hyperbole. It's a tool that's used to indicate preference. So remember back in Genesis and, and the phrase where, where Jacob hated Leah, but he loved, I'm sorry, yeah, he hated Leah, he loved Rachel. Uh, it, it's, it's covenant language. It's a way of saying, it's, it's not that he hated Leah, that he couldn't stand her. He just made a preferential choice for Rachel. And we do the same thing with our marriage vows today. When, when we're getting ready to do a wedding this weekend and we go back through the vows and we say, hey, I'm committed to you and forsaking all others, right? I'm forsaking everybody else. Well, of course, that doesn't mean that we all of a sudden stand up and then the next week after we get married, we call mom and dad and be like, mom, dad, I'm forsaking you later. All right. I'm never talking to you again. I hate you guys or uh, other friends. Sorry, I got married. I'm out. I'm checking out of all the things. Call your boss. Sorry, I hate you now. I'm married. Of course, we don't do that. So it's, it's, it's a, it's language of choice. It's language of preference. And Jesus is saying, in one way or another, if you don't choose a higher allegiance than your family, than your security network, then you can't be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple if we don't forsake all others in a sense to follow Jesus. The allegiance to Jesus for a Christian disciple, has to be primary. And it's very liberating when you think of it that way. Uh, we live in a culture that is very, very, very anxious and afraid. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'll just set aside for a second like an actual anxiety diagnosis where medication is needed and 
mental health and, and counseling and things like that. And, and that's we very much affirm that process. But there's a lot of anxiety that we carry that I think could be eliminated by determining the primary allegiance. Because a lot of our anxiety comes from competing allegiances. We're going, gosh, I've got to do this on Monday and this on Tuesday and this on Wednesday and this on Thursday and this on Friday. And I've got all these things. And gosh, my kids bringing home now stuff from school every day. And they can be, you know, they're, hey, mom, can we do this? Hey, dad, can we do this? Will you take me on this weekend? Can we do that? And that's in addition to our jobs and all the other stuff that we have to do. And so we're just bombarded with all of these opportunities for anxiety. And the way of discipleship, the way of the cross is very simple. And Jesus is saying, I give you a way of freedom, a primary allegiance, where you can hold your life up and say, Lord, if everything else that I do fails, if I commit my life to you and I walk in your footsteps, I promise that none of it will be wasted. It's a very liberating way to live. The second thing that Jesus holds up is if, that if you don't do this, you can't be my disciple, is whoever does not take up their own cross and follow after me cannot be my disciple. So it's not just take up the cross, it's take up your own cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Again, this is review. Jesus said in, in, in chapter 9 of Luke, uh, if, if you want to save your life, which we all do, then you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, Jesus says, and for the gospel, and you will gain your life. You will find life. You will find this hope and this peace if you give yourself to me. Again, it's an open invitation. It's whoever would do this. It's open invitation, high standards. It's, it's not appealing any longer to the lowest possible level of commitment. You know, sometimes we're guilty of that as a church. Uh, some of our church decline from 1960 until now is, can simply be chalked up to the fact that we didn't ask people to be disciples. You know, there were times where we just said, hey, we're happy if you just come to the front, be a church member, join a committee if you're really glutton for punishment, and then, hey, well, that's, you're a disciple, right? We all, we all know what that's like. And then, and then somewhere along the way when life got hard or something came up, we just said, you know what? I don't really need that anymore. I mean, what's the point? Why would I give my life to that? It's not really, I'm just kind of, eh. It's a low, lowest common denominator way of discipleship is just saying like, now, all you have to do to follow Jesus is just, you know, this one little thing. So all we're asking is a very different story than Jesus tells, which, again, makes me uncomfortable, as it should. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the uh, 20th century martyr, who was uh, the German uh, theologian and pastor who was resisting the Third Reich and everything Hitler was about, and holding the church accountable to the way that we were in the world. He had an underground seminary where he was forming the minds and hearts of young people, uh, and, and again, to resist the great evil around him. And, and one of the things that he wrote uh, was a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, in the introduction, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It just gives you goosebumps. You realize that this image of us carrying a cross around together, we are walking around as people who are already condemned to death on a cross. We're shouldering the same symbol that resulted in Jesus' death. We are cross-bearers in the world. It's foundational. If you think of just even the imagery of a cross on my shoulders and on our shoulders, we think of a cross there, uh, 
and, and in the sense that the cross is sort of the foundational uh, thing that's ever happened in the world, you can't get any more foundational than that if you're underneath the cross. It'd be like being underneath the foundation of a house, underneath a cornerstone. You can't get any more bedrock than that. And Jesus gives this image of if you want to be my disciple, you have to crawl underneath the cross. It has to be foundational for you. So remember the old hymn, Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. I gladly would take my stand beneath the cross of Jesus. And one of the reasons we gladly would take our stand beneath the cross of Jesus, even though it's hard, even though crucifixion is not fun, is we find under the cross a company of people who have gathered ourselves in, under the same cross. And again, because we're being disciple, we find joy and we learn skills and we share in sorrows and we share in joy. We find our friends underneath the cross. I, I was working with a friend this week uh, who's a pastor at First Methodist in Lubbock, and we were preaching the same text this week, so we were a couple of voicemails back and forth and in between meetings, and we're talking throughout the week and, and, uh, and just talking about our different ideas for the sermon. And so if you went and listened to First Methodist uh, podcast this week, it probably sounds somewhat similar to this one. And, uh, and this morning I, we were texting, and I said, and I've known this guy for about 20 years, and I said, uh, Bailey, I said, one of the great joys of this week for me has been preparing this sermon with you because we have been, I, I've found a companion in you under the cross for these last 20 years. And it was a joyful thing to just know that, hey, for whatever else we've gained and lost, we've come back to this place. And by God's grace, we're here we are. This is what we're doing. So prioritize Christ. Um, Bear your cross. And then there's an interlude before the third, you must or else you cannot. And uh, that interlude is a, is a couple of little parables. And Jesus, in his masterful way, tells, this, tells these parables uh, of where, where the outcome in both parables, the tragedy, the possible tragedy, uh, a, a tragedy, the outcome, would be an insufficiency of resources. Right? He says you would never go and build a tower without sitting there and kind of looking at the plans, making sure you had enough materials against start, Because otherwise, you get halfway through at the tower and you realize you didn't have materials. You have a half-built tower. Everybody's going to laugh at you. <laughs> I love the way he brings up this shame. Everyone's going to scorn you. You're going to be embarrassed. Why would you do that? And the next one is no one would go to war against an army of 20,000. If they had 10,000, if they didn't first evaluate, hey, can I make this work or not? And if you realize you can't, well, you better send a peace emissary because that's the only way you're getting out of this thing alive. Counting the cost, taking a survey of resources. And so it follows that the only sufficient, the only way to guarantee a sufficiency of resources in discipleship in the kingdom of God is sort of this full commitment, this fidelity to discipleship, to the process. That's the only way I can guarantee a sufficiency of resources. And again, it's not who has the most resources to begin with. It's who is willing to give our lives. And that sacrificed life becomes the sufficient resource for gaining everything. The final call is any one of you who does not renounce all that he or she has cannot be my disciple. So, 
the, the Greek word here for renounce is 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 literally to bid farewell. And in my you know West Texas interpretation, it's to say adios to to everything that that we have. So it's it's truly anyone who does not bid farewell to everything that he has cannot be my disciple. And I mentioned you know, this is not a text I would have chosen if you just said, "Hey Ryan, you can preach on anything you want this week." <laughs> I would not have picked this one. This one has given me fits, and it makes us uncomfortable. It's difficult. What in the world, Jesus, do you mean by if you don't renounce, if you don't say goodbye to everything that you have, you can't mean by disciple? What am I supposed to do? What does that mean? I mean, that can mean a million different things. Whatever it means for us today, we find some comfort in the fact that Christians have been wrestling with this phrase, this pair of this story from Jesus for 2,000 years. We have wrestled with this. I don't think anyone that read this and that heard it the day it was spoken, anyone that read it in the year 325 in North Africa or someone that read it in Germany in 1517, I don't think it was ever an easy text to read. I don't think anyone ever read it and said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm already there. I'm so glad to have this call from Jesus. I just made it, and this is affirmation. It's a rubber stamp that I done got it figured out. I've already, I've already made it. Some people, in response to this text, have concluded that they should live a monastic life. They have walked away from technology and from jobs and from living and families and gone into a, a, a community of like-minded people, and they've committed their lives to prayer and work in a totally different way than you and I have. Other people have decided that their response to this text is to move to Indonesia, like my friends Josh and uh, and, and his family. They they that they said that's what it looks like for us to be faithful is to take our kids, our three kids, to Indonesia and to live out the gospel there. Others have decided that. They should open their homes, that they should open their fields, that they should open their businesses to the mission of Jesus Christ, like we see in the book of Acts, that we see in the 18th century in industrial England or in this culture today in Nolan County. Others have decided to become teachers or fathers or youth volunteers. It's good for us to sit with the burden of the call. To not heap guilt guilt upon ourselves for saying like, oh, I can never be enough. I can never be the real, those real disciples that do all that stuff. That's not what it's about. But letting the burden of the call, you know, just rest with us a bit and listening for a clear voice from Jesus for us. Not for the ones that were called to go to Indonesia. I mean, there may be someone in here that's going to be called to go to Indonesia someday, but at least for now, it's not me and it's not you. So what is the call for me and for you? Not heaping guilt, but with a clear conscience considering what is Christ calling me to do? How can I live out this life in this way, saying goodbye to all of my security? Not disregarding the tug, a draw, a little nudge that the Holy Spirit may be giving me or you or us as a church. Steps that we can take as a disciple. I want to wrap up today by um, asking a question, a hard question that I have, and then also by uh, looking at some recent data 
looking at young Christians in the United States. Okay, And the first one uh, would be young Christians in the United States. There's a new book out uh, by a guy named David Kinneman who works with the Barna Research Group. And uh, we started seeing stuff from them in the mid-90s uh, where they would look at churches and, and, and Christians across the United States. And now they're looking at other countries and they would they would analyze, okay, what makes people tick? Why do, why do church people go back to church every week? Why do people leave church that leave church? They paid attention to all of these things. And a lot of the research that they've been putting out are Kinnaman, who started uh, releasing stuff in around 2007. And, uh, and a lot of the data that they were putting out was really disturbing. And it was like, man. All of our young people are leaving the church. Like, what are we doing wrong? And so they were, they were trying to make sense of this data. Why are young people leaving the church? And what are those key factors that keep young people holding on to their faith, uh, going on to the next generation? And so we've learned a lot from them. But it's pretty fascinating in their new book. He's calling it um, Faith for Exiles. And this new book, Faith for Exiles, just says, yeah, we may be in a post-Christian culture, whatever you want to call it, in the United States. But some of the things that we're seeing from our young generations, that would be millennials, gen, Generation Z, uh, some of Generation, I guess, X, you know, I mean, kind of in there. Some of the things we're seeing from these people is very, very encouraging. Because we always hear the bad stuff. And, oh, those dang millennials, you know, whatever, always on their phones. Some of the things we're seeing, uh, and, and they're identifying kind of, you know, 20% roughly of folks that have hung on to their faith. Let's say, let's take a 22-year-old college student who's hung on to their faith, they're noticing this category of people, and they're, they're calling them resilient disciples, saying about 20% of these folks that have hung on, they've, they've, we would call them resilient disciples, and they identify these five things we won't talk about today, but it's, it's very inspiring. And these, this group is making Christianity, I think, for the world and for their peers and for us, is making Christianity believable. Because we are full of a culture that's cynical about Christianity. We've seen all of the disappointing things about Christianity. We've seen the televangelists now for generation after generation. We're tired of that. We're tired of seeing stuff like that. Just the constant failure of nerve. So we're seeing this increased credibility of younger people. And it's, it just reminds me that whatever else we do when we respond to texts like this, that you must do this, or you can't be my disciple. We have to create communities where young people can be disciples of Jesus. We have to create communities where they can be learners alongside of those of us that are a little further down the road. We have to create these kinds of communities where children and youth and parents can learn, where we can put Christianity to the test, where the real questions facing us today can be presented and put on the table of Christianity. And so now, Christianity, can you hold up under this weight? And it reminds us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not fragile. It's not a straw man. It's something that can hold up under the weight of the burdens of the questions that we have. And uh, it's one of the reasons I'm really excited about our new Sunday school class for our youth aged kiddos. Uh, and it's, it's designed to work through the material of Christianity in the context of some of us who are a little older. And, it, and it's the platform is to get us to tell our stories and how we've wrestled with the things of faith and how we've prayed when life is hard and how we've done some of the things that we've done. And so some of you are on that list and you'll be getting a call to help lead our youth ministry in that way. But I think that's just the thing that we need is communities like that where we can ask these hard questions. And then finally, I just want to ask, uh, maybe this is more for me than for anybody else. 
But what about those who have answered the call? We feel like we've, we have responded to Jesus in a way that seemed appropriate at the time. And again, this bearing of the cross and stuff is ongoing. It's not something you just do when you walk the aisle and give your life to the Lord. This is an ongoing, everyday thing. So what about people that have, feel like we've answered this call and, and, and we've said goodbye to everything, right? We've said goodbye to a certain way of life in favor of the cross. And we've maybe lost friends because of this, or we've lost business clients because of this, or we've lost certain things because of this, and, and yet life has taken some very disappointing turns. I look at many of, of, of friends and family and, and church community who uh, have given their lives to the rhythms of the gospel in this way and have just gotten some really, really, really hard breaks. Where is the consolation the call, and the call to discipleship for those who are really struggling in life, not because of their Christianity, but just because life is really hard? I think it's good to affirm as consolation that it's okay to doubt. It's okay to be angry with God and to voice that in the church as the Psalms do. It's good to remember that cross bearers are not victims. That to bear the cross in the world is not to be victimized. That only people who are strong can bear a cross. Jesus did not go to the cross as a victim. It was not his bad luck. But he chose to go there. And any cross that we bear, we must choose, right? It's not like, oh, my life's been so hard, and I lost my job, and I lost all this stuff, but I'm just suffering for Jesus, right? We've all, we all heard that. Life, life is just so tough for me, and they disconnected my cable, but I'm just suffering for Jesus, whatever the thing is. Uh, and that's not what we're taught. That's not bearing the cross. And I think the final consolation that I can discover today, at least, and you, you all will see things that I'm missing, and that is that, and it's just a few verses back, and, and Jesus says, look, when you live your life in this way, with open hospitality, and you invite people to your banquets that can't repay you, there will be a reward for you at the resurrection of the just. So I think a honest interpretation of this story at least has to include that there are some things that we will never be repaid for in this life. There are some things that we can only be repaid for at the resurrection of the just. That gives us hope. So I invite us to this mystery of discipleship. Ask ourselves the question, can we trust Jesus together? What would it look like to give our lives to Christ again in this way? What is the next step for you or for me? Maybe it's something we can share with each other, with a friend, something we can share with one another that we feel like God is calling us to. Let us be recommitted to being salty people, to being people who live in the world full of salt and make Christianity believable, credible, and inspiring again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.